welcome to the PMNR Scholars Podcast. The following is a recording of one of our live didactic sessions. If you would like information on future didactic sessions, join our mailing list at pmnrscholars.org. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram for our latest news, and subscribe to us on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcasts. The following should not be used solely for clinical decision making, but instead to educate and inform your studies in your career. For this discussion, we were joined by Dr. Maria Venushkina to discuss her experiences and advice for the first job hunt. Hope you enjoy. I'm Dr. James Rainville. I'm the soon-to-be staff physiatrist at UC Health in Colorado Springs, working at their spine center there. Um, and I'm here to talk to you guys today about just uh, the process of getting a first attending job and some of the uh, worries, uh, concerns, unanswered questions that I've had as I've started along on this journey, but also that my peers and friends and mentors have shared with me. Um, where we'll talk a little bit about planning some financial considerations. Uh, I'm guessing the money is going to be in the how to narrow search and decide what you want to do, uh, but also uh, the part where you try and decide what it is that your starting salary should be. How do you even know what you're worth and how do you determine uh, what it is you're actually contractually obligated to do and what do they owe you in return and vice versa. Um, if we have time, we can talk about some of the new hire onboarding, credentialing, privileging, practice building, depending on your guys' uh, interests, et cetera. So here's the first one. Um, I think everybody has this question, which is when do you actually start job hunting? Um, there's no perfect answer, but there's a rule, of, a rule of thumb, which is about 12 months before your ideal start date. And we'll talk about why in a second. Um, Questions to ask yourself are this. Uh, there's definitely a set of personal factors that may determine whether or not you uh, need to start the job hunting process earlier. And that's if you have a lot of restrictions about where you wanna work um, or what type of practice or what type of uh, work environment you wanna be, or if you're perhaps uh, trying to work with your, or trying to relocate or find a job with your significant other and, also in a medicine field, um, you might want to give yourself an extra couple months buffer. Um, in general, the factors that determine the period of time you should start uh, this process in is the licensing stuff. Um, my biggest pearl for you guys is to get your license early. Uh, that's in part because the process itself takes uh, anywhere from sorry, uh, anywhere from three to six months, depending on which state you're applying for your medical license in. Uh, some of the notoriously long states are uh, New York, uh, California, Colorado. Those are all in the six month range. Um, Massachusetts also a very, very lengthy process. And uh, there's people that work with 
firms that help you apply for your license. And even with having somebody do all that stuff for you, it still takes that long. Um, and obviously when people are looking to hire you, they, they tend to also have a specific start date in mind. So uh, a lot of recruiters will actually ask you um, or require that you have a license or be making good faith efforts to obtain one uh, before they even consider moving you forward in the interview process. Not everybody's that strict, but that's kind of the biggest consideration. The other part is that it takes a period of time for the job to actually get ready for you to start working there. There's um, that onboarding credentialing privileging process that you have to go through that also takes a couple months. Um, it's a lot easier to uh, find time for your job or, well, we'll talk about that next, uh, but it's a lot easier to uh, job hunt if you already have all those things in place because then it's just a matter of changing your address on your DEA um, and off you go. So now that you've got your timeline in place, um, you've decided if you wanna take vacation or need time, special time to relocate because you're going across country and you've factored all that in, you're gonna start your job search. It's not as hard as applying to medical school or residency. Um, it's mostly done online uh, by submitting a bunch of your paperwork either through a some kind of user interface that they've created or literally just emailing them your CV um, and a little blurb about yourself. But have an updated CV. Uh, if you're in the process of applying, be prepared to have references, ask people ahead of time. Um, most people require at least three if you're new out of your training. Usually those three people are going to be your program director, your department chair, and another attending that um, that you've worked closely with. Uh, if you're a fellow, it will obviously be your faculty um, or prior residency references as well. Uh, the way that they do references is kind of weird. Not all of them actually require letters. Um, in my experience of going through this process, only one person, actually, or not person, excuse me, only one uh, place asked me for written letters of recommendation. Some of them will just send you a, or send your writers a link where they just evaluate you on a form. Uh, Kaiser and some of the um, private medical groups do things like that. Others will have the medical director or chair contact your references. You just wanna be uh, courteous and give them a heads up ahead of time. Uh, they will ask you about your licensing information, your licensing number and where you are in that process. So have that ready. Um, letter of intent, uh, not, I found that most places don't actually require one, but when I was contacting people just from finding uh, their uh, posting, I would always include a brief blurb, blurb about myself and what I'm looking for what are, um, and kind of what skills that I was looking to market about myself and a call to action for them to contact me. So I'd recommend something along the lines. You can have like a stem that you modify as you go through the process to kind of tailor it to the specific position you're applying for, but I'm sure a lot of the stuff you put in there will be the same. Um, the most important part is to actually have an idea of what you want to do. And it looks like 
uh, one of you wants to be a pediatric attending, which is awesome, you are going to have a really easy time finding a job, my friend. That's a, uh, when I was at AAPMNR this year, that's like everybody was looking for a PEDS attending, so you'll be set. Um, but for those of you who are not so certain, uh, we'll talk about how to narrow that search in a second, but I wanted to show, share with you guys, I'm sorry, um, where to actually look for jobs. Because uh, honestly, if has it, oops, I'm sorry, I knew I messed this up at some point. Okay, I apologize. So, um, it's very easy to find jobs. AAPMNR is your best bet. Um, they have a job board that's constantly updated, but a bunch of professional organizations have their own job boards. Both AAP, ANEM had uh, jobs that I apply for. If you are looking to work for VA, you can uh, go to their careers page and directly apply through there. You can uh, look at individual health systems. Uh, so, for example, the Kaisers, if any of you are interested in HMO type of employment, which is a pretty cool model, um, you will go to the individual Kaiser Permanente Medical Group's website. I believe there's six or seven of them, and they're all unique uh, physician-led organizations that uh, have their own policies and their own jobs, although they share a similar philosophy um, um, in being an HMO. So you can actually look through them there. I found some jobs doing that. I found my position at the UC Health Careers website. So just um, if you have a place you want to go to geographically, just look up what health systems are in the area and you'll be able to find uh, something that you're interested in. There are recruiters. Um, when I was at conferences, there's a lot of recruiters at career nights. Uh, you can give them your email and if you're interested in more um, I guess both permanent positions but also more like locums work moonlighting that might be a good place to start um, they will send you a lot of emails <laughs> a lot of emails uh, with different positions based on the areas that you select um, there that's totally fine also the obvious stuff you can hunt for in person um, and your department should be able to hook you up with career nights job fairs um, etc so this is this is kind of the uh, this is the part that I kind of struggled with or not struggled with, but I spent a lot of time considering, and that's how do you decide where, uh, where what it is you're looking for, which sounds both easy and hard at the same time. Or um, there's a lot of personal factors to the job hunt. Now that you are an attending, you have a lot more say over both what you do. Uh, what type of patient population you see, how you practice, uh, what type of responsibilities you want to take on, um, and also what you a certain amount of uh, say over what your kind of um, lifestyle balance is going to look like. For me, the most important personal factors were location, and I feel like if you talk to your mentors and attendings, you're going to hear that uh, repeated a lot, um, which is just go somewhere where you know you'll be happy. Um, it is okay to pick a job or a place that you want to go to because it's beautiful. Um, if you're not tied by, you know, either family or other restrictions, it's fine to do that. Um, it's a lot easier, as I mentioned, to job hunt once you have all of your 
necessary information in place. If you're already in a state, um, you can be job hunting pretty much all the time, right? Um, it's a much easier transition. Uh, it's also important for you to consider what type of setting you want to practice in. We'll get into some details about the different types of settings that exist, but there's a whole mix of stuff. Do you want to be inpatient? Do you want to be outpatient? Do you want to do um, locum tenens work? Do you want to do sniff work? Do you want to do legal work? Do you want to work from home some days? Um, do you have a career path that you're looking at that requires time outside of the clinical environment? Do you want to be a research, uh, or excuse me, a clinician scientist or a clinician educator? Um, and if that's the case, do you need a place that's going to support you in that growth, or can you find other outlets for those ambitions of yours? For example, if you want to be a teacher, there you there's opportunities for you to be both clinical faculty. Um, which is essentially volunteer, by the way. You don't get paid to do that. Um, or volunteer through organizations and uh, conferences. Um, the other part that you may want to look at uh, completely outside of the finance realm is, uh, is there room for growth for you in this job? And growth may mean different things to different people. Um, for me, growth means the opportunity to do some research, the opportunity to do some mentoring, the opportunity to do some education. Um, and I found a position where I am able to do all that on my own time if I want to, but it's not required of me. Uh, for some people, it's an integral part of how they uh, practice medicine. They love working with trainees, so they choose other pathways. And again, there's work-life balance questions. Do you want to work four days a week? Is it important for you to be home to your family at three o'clock every day? Do you not don't want to do call? All that stuff is completely negotiable and you'll find jobs that hit a lot of those things, but um, ultimately you'll have to compromise on some things. So you'll have to come up with your set of deal breakers and your set of uh, things that are non, um, that you're willing to bend on. There are some places that for example, won't let you do procedures or will limit the type of procedures that you can do, like only doing hip ultrasound and shoulder ultrasound injections, no knee injections. Is that a deal breaker for you? I don't know, right? It, it's weird stuff that I never thought I'd have to think about. Um, other stuff to consider is financial factors. And again, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the compensation model in a second, but do you need to be in a specific organization uh, so that you can apply to PSLF. Uh, right now, I think it's just a 403B or whatever that you can do all the non-for-profit ones, uh, which may limit how much, or excuse me, it may, um, it may be harder for you to find those types of organizations that fit all your needs. So, uh, but think about that. Think about what compensation model you want. Um, there are many ways to get paid as an attending and it's very important for you to understand what those ways are and how you specifically get paid so that you don't get uh, less than you expect. Um, risk tolerance is another consideration. There's definitely more risk in starting your own business. Um, and there's other factors like your pair mix, your, um, uh, your desire to actually be a boss, your uh, willingness to give up your uh, rights to practice medicine and other aspects once you get a job um, at a specific employer. All of that is 
out there and you can negotiate some of it, but some of it's pretty much set in stone. So um, I wanted to talk to you guys about some uh, practice models. And one of the ones that you don't really get exposure to much as a resident or as a trainee is the sole proprietor, um, where you're really uh, your own person. You work for yourself as yourself. Uh, you don't necessarily, there is no startup cost. You, you don't need to start a business. Um, all the revenue that you make uh, gets taxed at a personal income rate uh, quarterly. You uh, can write off your work expenses a little bit in your taxes, but um, that doesn't affect your actual like income. You have to declare everything as yours. Uh, some people recommend that you consider establishing something called a DBA or doing business as um, at a county clerk if you are going to be a sole proprietor. This is to make sure that nobody else is practicing uh, under your name um, and to protect yourself a little bit in that way. Uh, you can also open what's called a limit liability corporation or LLC or a PLLC in certain states. Um, the benefit of doing something like that is to protect yourself uh, personally and financially from legal liability. And that's including um, in cases where uh, something happens at work and somebody tries to come after you, your personal finances, or in the event that you hit somebody with your car and they try to sue you and take the money from your business. An LLC will protect you from that and put up walls. In addition, um, there are some potential tax advantages to having an LLC, which are new as of about 2017. Um, I'm by no means an expert in uh, any of those tax advantages. If you are decided, uh, interested in going in this direction, my recommendation to you would be to get somebody that has experience with uh, business and accounting, like a CPA or a financial advisor to help you kind of navigate the pros and cons and the different benefits of doing this. But the reason you might wanna do this is if you're doing locum tenens work, if you're doing independent private practice, and that might look like a bunch of different things for different people. Uh, some people just rent a room from uh, orthopedic practice and work that way. Um, or some people just invest in a building. Also, if you're doing any type of non-clinical consulting work like IMEs or medical writing or some kind of education, you can uh, get paid that way. Um, I think with LLC, you do have some costs that go along with it. Uh, I think the average for most states is about $1,000 or so. And you do have to annually report your business finances and pay some kind of business fee. Um, the requirements are different from state to state and the protections that it offers you are also different from state to state. So investigate that for yourself when you decide where you're going. Um, if you are interested in being a business owner um, and being your own boss, there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, those specifically include the ability to, again, do whatever you want as long as your partners um, are agreeable and as long as obviously you're not doing anything that's ethically not okay. Um, you can set your own time, you can set your own hours, but you also have all the responsibilities of being a business owner. That means you are responsible for covering the overhead expenses. You're responsible for hiring the staff, uh, doing all their uh, business related paperwork, 
uh, doing your own marketing, uh, going out there into the community and advertising for yourself, meeting PCPs and trying to arrange that for yourself to get referral sources, buying your own EMR, and being responsible for keeping up with all the regulations on your own. Um, some people love that and they thrive for it. And they tend to get rewarded for it too. There's a lot rest, as I mentioned, there's a lot less restrictions. And for a private practice partner or business owner, essentially the way it works is that you eat what you kill. Uh, basically what you are collecting based on your billings is what you keep minus your overhead expenses, um, which uh, can be negotiated in a variety of different ways with your partners. It can include a flat percentage. The average, just so you guys are aware, is anywhere between 40% to 60%. Uh, 60% is for over, like orthopedic practice groups that have a lot of MAs, nurses, uh, radio, uh, rad techs, et cetera, um, secretary, schedulers. There's definitely a trade-off uh, for efficiency and having more staff, but there's a cost, yeah. Um, usually when you're first starting out, you are, you may be on a partnership track, but you're, no, um, you're not gonna be a partner. Uh, you start out usually employed as a junior associate, um, which is a different uh, tax uh, form for you guys. Usually the independent contractors use tax form one, uh, 1099. Uh, versus a W-2 for an employee. Um, the benef the being a junior asso associate also comes with its pros and cons. There are some non-ACGME fellowships that are structured like this. Um, basically, you tend to have a salary as a junior associate that's a little bit below the market median, and we'll talk about what that is in a second as well. Um, you trade off a lower salary for the experience of your senior partners who help you grow your business and obtain all the necessary skill sets, which sometimes may include procedural training in interventional, um, different interventional things, usually spine and pain interventions um, or neuromodulation interventions. Uh, most of them do have a partnership track uh, that requires you to buy in to the practice. The way you'd usually do that is you take out a business loan using the practice itself as the leverage um, and that could be of a, a various of various sums but the biggest uh, important piece here is that make sure that the partnership track itself is well defined so that you know what the um, timeline is what the buy-in is going to be and all of that process um, if you are again going to do something out there where you're uh, either in a private practice or self-employed or joining a small group, make sure you have a lawyer review your contract because some of them, uh, if they're not done by an expert, uh, may leave you vulnerable for, uh, for the future. If business ownership is not for you, the category I fall into, uh, you have a number of options as an employee physician. Um, the one that most of us are the most familiar with is, of course, the academic pathway, which is basically being a school of medicine uh, employee and faculty member. Um, these are sometimes hard to come by because uh, the departments have certain access needs and certain budgets, and um, that usually require you know projection and planning into the future. Uh, you are not always guaranteed a job at your residency, that's for sure. Um, 
So if you're willing, if you're willing to be flexible, you can definitely find a position like this though. And again, for people that are in a competitive uh, or interested in uh, things like pediatrics or uh, maybe even cancer rehab, those are some pretty in demand uh, specialties that I found uh, as I've been looking. Um, you'll be able to go in a lot of places, but usually big medical centers, obviously, so metropolitan areas. Uh, most uh, academic positions are salaried. Uh, you just get paid a flat amount every year. Uh, it might be adjusted uh, depending on either variations in the market, value of physician work, or in um, maybe you have negotiated for a cost of living adjustment every year that's let's say 3%. AAP Minar recommends you do that, although that, that is not a standard thing to see in contracts, at least in my experience so far. Um, being School of Medicine faculty means that you are required to participate in academic work. Um, that means having students, residents, teaching, um, often as part of your clinic. And as a new attending, you may or may not want that. Uh, you may want time uh, to figure out your own flow and get your own kind of comfort in there. There are definitely certain requirements that you have to do if you are employed. You have to participate in faculty meetings. You have, again, you owe X amount of hours of student teaching, and you may be required to publish if you want to advance in rank from, you know, instructor to associate professor to full professor, et cetera. Um, each department and each institution have a slightly different system for advancing in said rank, but um, the one that I've uh, seen the most often has to do with your publications. Um, so essentially, if you have posters or presentations at conferences, you usually start out as an instructor. If you have one peer-reviewed paper, you tend to be advanced to um, you know, an associate professor rank. Um, if, you are inter if you have an international presence, which may mean giving a presentation at an international conference, um, you advance in rank, et cetera, et cetera. So um, again, for some people, that's something to consider. Uh, for those not interested in that component of it, but do want to be an employee and not worry about any of the operational stuff, you can be an employed physician for a non-for-profit or for-profit company. Um, usually, as an employee, your employer is contractually obligated to um, help you uh, to provide your staff, to provide your facilities, to uh, provide your scheduling, marketing, to do all your billing and collections for you. In exchange, you are again usually compensated with a salary, but often there is a productivity incentive or bonus, um, and we'll talk about what that is in a second as well. You are not required to teach, you do not have to do research, um, but you may be asked to do some volunteer work or whatever depending on the discretion of the people who are in charge of you. Um, you can also be employed for by a for-profit. Uh, something I didn't know, which may be obvious to other people, is that uh, Kaiser Medical Group, although the um, although the insurance plan is a non-for-profit, uh, the Kaiser Medical Group is actually for-profit. And working for Kaiser or similar type places um, would also mean that you get to participate in some profit sharing. Uh, depending on how you guys perform uh, and what incentives you have. Um, there's a lot of advantages to working uh, for both uh, that are individual. Um, 
somewhat individual to each person. Uh, groups like Kaiser tend to be a little bit more restrictive in my experience in what they allow you to do. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's up to you and how you want to compromise. Typically, they'll structure you in blocks um, and uh, have you a combination of uh, things that are that they consider to be of a specialist level value. So um, some of them will not allow you to do certain types of injections because their primary care superstars do those, um, like knees, and would only allow you to do hips and shoulders. Um, other other Kaiser Medical Groups and other similar practices may allow you to do whatever you want. Um, it all just depends on what they're looking for at the time and what you're able to negotiate, but make sure you understand what it is that you're signing up for. Uh, the most important part, I think, or the part that at least I didn't feel like I had very adequate um, exposure to as a resident was figuring out what it is uh, you're worth and getting a sense of what, what you're actually can pay. I know some of you like myself probably have tried to Google it, uh, but um, what you'll find is that that's not super informative at all or accurate. So I wanted to break it down for you guys a little bit. Most fellows typically get a PGY-5 salary that's uh, commensurate with the region, state, or whatever that they're in. Um, they also get benefits that are part of it or that are part and or separate of their salary. If you're a junior associate or, um, again, a kind of a non-classic, non-ACGME fellow, uh, you may have a junior associate salary, which I've seen anywhere between 100 and 200,000 per year. Um, you may or may not have productivity incentives. Uh, you usually have benefits and you may or may not have relocation expenses covered by your uh, future employer. Um, the reason that that salary is a bit below um, market median is because it's usually an expense for the partners to bring you on uh, and you are usually not very productive the first, you know, X amount of time that you're in practice that's variable anywhere from, uh, I don't know, a couple months to a year. And certain places will give you a salary guarantee if they really want to retain you and help you build your practice by helping you optimize how efficient you are with your EMR, helping set up meetings for you to uh, mingle with your referral sources, all that stuff. Um, as an employee physician, uh, when you're first out of training, you are an unknown entity. Um, so you have to use market averages and standards to help you understand what it is that you are worth. Um, it's, there's a couple of different surveys that exist for it. And um, if there is a PMNR scholars Dropbox or file share of some kind, I'm happy to, sh or I don't, I don't know, I guess I can share it too with you guys on an individual basis when you need it. Um, but there is a whole spreadsheet out there, uh, multiple from multiple different companies that exist. And you are paid uh, usually, or at least your total benefits package, including your salary, should be about median for what they consider your specialty. Um, and what, again, nobody had ever really talked to me is that as a physiatrist, you can actually be considered a couple of different specialties and they are compensated unequally. Um, in general physiatry, you have a median salary that ranges between 
290 to $320 right now. These things change every year, and I suspect that the median salaries uh, or all of this data for the next couple years is going to be shifted down like 30% because of this COVID stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's basically a survey that they do of practicing physicians, and it's not a fair representation of all the different practice types. Um, it's mostly based on how productive you are in terms of RVUs uh, and the differences in the compensations between different specialties really is more of a productivity uh, difference. So um, for example, for general physiatry, I told you the median salary, the median RVU uh, target per year, and this is a work RVU, I'll mention to you what that means in a second, um, is about 5,000 or maybe 5,400 for a non-anesthesia pain physician, okay, which could be a physiatrist or a neurologist or I guess even a psychologist, um, that median salary is quite significantly higher. And the, the difference is largely due to the fact that the median RVU for non-anesthesia pain is about 6,500 um, based on, I think, 2019 or 2018 MGMA data. Um, the reason that their RVU differences are so high is because right now, uh, physicians are incentivized to do procedures and procedures are compensated at a higher rate than clinic visits. Um, I'm not here to uh, talk about the uh, pros and cons of that. Um, it's just an accepted fact of what it is right now. And you have to understand that so that you, under you can kind of navigate the system um, and be aware of both your own internal biases or uh, adverse incentives and put patient care first. Um, but an employee physician, depending on how much the employer wants to hire you, they will throw a couple different things at you to uh, draw you to a region especially or a job. Um, usually the benefits are competitive. You will get relocation um, expenses covered, usually within a, uh, usually a certain amount that you negotiated or discuss ahead of time. They may or may not give you a sign-on bonus that's separate. And as a side note, um, Usually your sign-on bonus doesn't happen when you sign the contract, although it may, it's less likely. Usually you get your sign-on bonus within 30 days of your first paycheck. So if you're planning to take some vacation between your end of training and first attending gig with your sign-on bonus, uh, you might be out of luck. Um, the relocation stuff sometimes is bundled into the sign-on bonus, but sometimes the employer will actually um, just give you a list of names of movers and whatever to work with and we'll hook you up with a agency that will book all your travel for you um, under their name so that you don't have to pay anything out of pocket at all which is super nice if you're a poor fellow uh, or resident um, this I do believe is considered taxable income though so um, they also may give you a uh, loan repayment uh, offers. Um, a lot of them are really a um, kind of an advance on pay almost. Basically, you are, it's, you have to serve for a certain amount of time and they'll say give you X amount of dollars if you're there for three years, um, X amount each year for that period of time in addition to your salary. Uh, again, that's taxable. Um, and now let's talk about the productivity and 
who actually determines these numbers. Because this is also an important thing that I don't feel like is, for at least for me, was covered in training. Um, it's actually a very oddly political topic and uh, somewhat complicated. If you're in starting, starting in this process, I would highly recommend that you uh, look into some of this stuff. Um, I actually have a wonderful lecture from Dr. Bradham that he gave to us on this topic. I wonder if you guys could reach out to him and ask him to do that or ask him for a slide deck. But um, everything about physiatry has to do with regulations. Um, we are regulated in terms of our licensing, in terms of um, our facilities, in terms of who can be a physician, uh, excuse me, in terms of who can be an attending or a physician uh, covering an inpatient unit. Does it have to be a physiatrist? Does it even have to be a physician? Um, and there's a lot of groups, uh, special interest advocacy groups out there that lobby for these things. Um, there's a lot of politics involved in reimbursement as well. And it's what, um, and your practice habits uh, also add into the regulations and the reimbursement through this really weird feedback loop. Um, what, um, the way that a lot of physicians are paid is based on a, what's called a RBRVS or relative base relative value system. Um, the most uh, commonly known component of which is the RVU or relative value unit. It's essentially uh, something that a person or a, gr a group of people have determined is one work unit for a physician, which right now is roughly equivalent to a level three follow-up office visit. And that's one, about one RVU. Uh, the way that uh, you get paid if you're working with a Medicare or Medicaid or government insurer is that um, you, you bill an E&M code, which has a CPT code that's linked to it, that's linked to a certain RVU value that is determined by CMS through a weird negotiating process. Um, you, there's actually uh, three components to the RVU. You have the work RVU, which is supposed to be a weighted value of how challenging any given service is, um, what type of skill it took in practice. Um, again, this is why uh, interventionalists and proceduralists, no matter what their background um, make more money than non-interventionalists. That includes surgeons versus non-surgeons, interventional cardiologists versus non-interventional cardiologists, interventional physiatrists versus not. Um, it's because interventions right now are worth more in the work RVU department. Um, there's actually also a practice, practice expense RVU or what m most people talk about as facility fees um, and a malpractice RVU. You add all those together to get a total RVU, and then you would multiply that by a conversion factor for Medicare, which um, also is updated every year. And this year it's around $36 and I think 86 cents or something like that. And that's your payment for that service. Um, that's what they will give you. Um, when you're working with private insurers, usually they will give you cer a certain percentage above what Medicare pays, let's say 120 or 130%. Um, uh, 110 to 115 percent, let's say. Um, if you're working with workers' comp, it will it may be closer to 140 percent of the Medicare payment. If you're working with personal injury, it might be, I don't know. You negotiate that. You negotiate your aid when you're doing legal work like that. Uh, it, well, depending on your practice setting, if you're in private practice for sure. Um, 
but you can see how some people, if they do go into private practice, may want to adjust their payer mix or the type of uh, insurers they accept uh, in order to have more, uh, I guess, enjoyable clinic visits so they don't have to see new patients every 20 minutes and instead can do maybe every 40 minutes and still get paid the same. Um, there's also a geographic multiplier that is added to the, um, that, it, that is part of this. So depending on what region you work in, you get paid more or less. And that's also reflected in your, um, when you look at MGMA median compensation data. Um, the RUC is the RVU um, updating committee. Uh, we have members of AAPMNR that are on that that help advocate for us. Uh, when they make changes and decisions to uh, RVU values um, in 2021, they are going to change the way that they reimburse office visits, both new and uh, existing patients. They're gonna clump level two through level four and just give you the same RVU value for all of those. Um, so that, that might change billing and or practice habits. Um, I wasn't gonna talk about it much and I probably won't, but be sure you um, kind of know what, how to bill and code for the services that you are gonna offer. Um, obviously you reimburse, people check um, what you're billing and if you're an outlier and billing too many codes, or if you're billing all level five visits, uh, you're, you might get the utilization review manager looking at you. Um, also codes that are commonly billed together and this goes back into the uh, feedback loop here, um, tend to get reviewed by the committees that monitor that type of stuff and get bundled. So you end up getting paid less in future iterations. Um, a good example for that in my field is right now, uh, in the past, fluoroscopy services and um, epidural injections were separate CPT codes and reimbursed separately. Uh, but now they are bundled and you get, uh, for a lumbar epidural, you get 1.5 work RVUs, where in the past, I think it was closer to four to five. Um, and that's been kind of gradually decreasing over time um, as certain services get utilized too much, perhaps. Um, so just something to keep in mind that your practice habits do shape uh, your reimbursement uh, in a bigger sense than you may think, not just for you, but for a lot of people. Um, all right, so now you are all, you're armed with all this knowledge, you know what you're worth, you've looked up your regional and your uh, specialty specific um, compensation rate, you're kinda, you can tell whether or not something's a good deal, you know what procedures you wanna do, this sounds like a good job, um, you apply for it. Um, usually the first conversation you have is with a recruiter or a practice man manager, and this again could be a private recruiting firm or most large organizations have their own recruiting in-house. Um, they will call you. This usually takes anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Um, they go through a standardized set of questions with you, mostly uh, getting a sense of what you wanna do, why, why this location, um, are you willing to do this and that? And then they'll usually read you a set of questions like, like have you ever been arrested? Has your license ever been revoked, et cetera? If you pass that initial phase, you'll usually move on to a phone interview with the medical director or chair of your department um, or the senior partner, again, depending on where you are applying. Um, 
again, this is the opportunity to really get a sense of what the mission and vision of the organization is that you're applying for more direct specifics about what your responsibilities are. Uh, and really don't be, don't be shy about this. Ask them like, am I seeing, you know, am I only doing clinic? What, what, what's my time breakdown for inpatient versus outpatient? Um, do I have call? How is that shared? Like, uh, really get a sense of it. You, you don't have to go overboard. This usually takes about an hour as well. You have, a, you get a sense of what, uh, th they want from you and hopefully they get a sense of what you want from them as well. This is really kind of like dating. You're just trying to see if you guys are going to be a good fit. Um, and as a side note, if you're not, don't worry about it. I don't know where this statistic came from and I don't like propagating statistics. I don't know uh, the source for, but I heard something like 50% of people end up switching jobs within their first two years just because it's not a good fit. So if that happens to you, don't worry about it. That's why you pick the location you want to go to so you can, uh, so you can make an easy transfer. Um, after you get through the phone interview with the medical director, you may have further conversations with uh, HR or the benefits office to describe, um, to describe the compensation and all of that stuff. Uh, then they'll invite you on, out to an on-site interview. Uh, things you need to know about that. Um, it's typically one to two days. Uh, they will, a lot of them will book the travel for you, but sometimes you might need to book the travel yourself and then get reimbursed. They will pay for it. They usually pay for you and your significant other or spouse. They do not pay for your kids, sorry. Um, they'll pay for your flight, uh, for your hotel, and usually for a rental car. That's pretty standard for uh, most people that are wanting to hire you. Some may pay for other things like food where you just submit, submit receipts. Um, the on-site interview is the opportunity to really get to know the practice and get to know the partners. They will take you out to a dinner, usually with your significant other, uh, one of the evenings, um, and get a sense of whether they're happy, what their goals are, um, and whether or not you can work with these people, if your philosophy of Caroline's, if that matters to you. Because um, other than that, this, that's kind of your opportunity to chat with them until you start. So assuming things go well, go well you go home, and then there's a waiting period. For the interview you for your job, there is not a universal, uh, or excuse me, a common offer date or a match date. Um, these tend to come in on a rolling basis. And as a side note, when you are talking to your medical director or doing your on-site interview, it is very important for you to ask them where they are at in their interview process, what their timeline is, and also be honest about yours, um, saying things like, you know, I'm just getting started and I have a couple interviews set up um, to, you know, your just, uh, I guess, it, I always, people will tell you different things, but I always feel like honesty is the best answer. Uh, but maybe I'm not the most, I don't know. Anyway, some people say that you should keep things close to your chest. Again, that's just not my style, but if that's yours, that's fine. But uh, it, usually communication works better if, you, if you're direct. Um, how they make the offer for you is usually via a phone call. Um, and they may give you a certain period of time to answer, or they may want an answer on the spot. I'd be very cautious with people that really try to pressure you into accepting something right then and there. Uh, it is reasonable to ask for a period of time to reflect. Um, but that period of time is anywhere between a couple of days to a week or so. Um, if you say yes, they will typically give you a written offer that is a 
um, non-binding contract, but should outline the terms that you guys discussed during your interview, including your salary and compensation model, your responsibilities, all that type of stuff. They might ask you to sign it and email back. Um, it is, as I mentioned, not a binding contract. Um, some people do go on to still interview when they have an active offer. Um, I would say that is an ethically gray area. I think that anywhere from a couple days, a couple business days to draft up to up to a couple weeks even. Um, and they vary in their length and level of detail. Uh, I would, in general, uh, prefer a longer contract that is very detail-oriented, outlining both the employer's responsibilities to you, your responsibilities to them, again, your compensation model, your evaluation. Um, there's usually standard verbiage in there about termination uh, and no cost termination, um, not competes. maybe five miles radius um, in a place where you are more rural, maybe a 20 to 50 mile radius uh, is a reasonable non-compete. Um, that may be negotiable, or not, not non-compete, yeah, non-compete. That may be nego negotiable, but maybe not. You can try. Um, other things that are included in your contract usually is uh, malpractice coverage and uh, tail coverage. Tail coverage is something that, um, so, Essentially, tail coverage is insurance for the future in the event that somebody you treated in the past sues you for, for the time period where you are still legally liable. Um, and that legally liable period is different depending on what it is that you're doing. For certain specialties like OBGYN uh, and deliveries, that may be 18 years. For certain things like knee injections, it's usually not that long. But um, if you leave a practice, and a former patient sues you, you definitely want tail coverage to take care of that so you don't have to pay for it out of pocket. Some employers will provide that as one of some of their benefits. Others will not, and you'll have to purchase it out of pocket yourself, which can be very expensive and may require you to budget in advance if you're thinking about leaving your employment uh, for whatever reason. Um, some of it may also be uh, tiered, meaning that uh, if you stay at a practice for a certain amount of time, let's say four years, they will fully cover your tail coverage. But if you leave before that period of time, you, they will only cover a certain percentage. Um, so just be aware. Uh, the contract review thing um, is a question that comes up a lot. Do you need a lawyer? And uh, the answer to that is personal. Again, if you're going into a private practice field or I would recommend that you do have a lawyer review your contract because there's a lot of different uh, freedoms that you have as a uh, prior practice partner, but also a lot of different responsibilities and a lot of different liabilities as a business owner that you want somebody with experience to review for you. If you're um, 
if you are just going to be an employee at a large organization, most of those contracts are pretty standard legalese, if you will. The biggest advice I have for you is read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it until you understand all the terms. And some of them are like 20 pages, so it's boring, very dry material. But you want to you wanna know what they mean with um, you want to know who has decision-making power. You want to know, um, again, how can you be terminated? What type of... So anyway, read that stuff. And don't sign it until you understand it. You can use your mentors, uh, your attendings, your uh, chiefs, your alumni, your family, um, even the recruiter, honestly, to ask questions about the language. My recruiter was very uh, helpful in helping me figure out what some of the terms actually meant to me. Um, so don't be afraid to get help. But once you sign, uh, the contract is not legally binding until it is executed. Executed usually means that the party has, one of the parties or, and or both of the parties have taken steps uh, in line with the contract. So usually if they start, uh, if they fly you out for house hunting or they uh, make efforts to uh, get your movers, um, that, that could technically count as executed, but really it's the day one of your job. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover. Um, I think that's right about our time. Um, these are some helpful resources uh, for personal and business finance. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of the Waiko Investor. The website's fabulous. I like the books a lot. The business side of medicine I'd recommend for people that are, um, that want to know more about some of the different private practice considerations and the different terminology that should go in the contract um, uh, and just understanding that whole process. Um, and this, that book's really good for different career parts of your career too. I, re I read through it and kind of enjoyed getting a sense of what the different financial goals are, the different stages in your life. Um, and then I've really enjoyed Never Split the Difference, especially as a negotiation book. Uh, helpful for you and patients. Um, so I think I will stop it there and maybe open it up to uh, questions or whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read them. Um, let's see. So Vinny, um, what would I have done different regarding my job hunt and what that, that I wish I did. Um, honestly, I wish I narrowed my geographic region earlier. Um, I was looking a little bit more broadly because I don't have any specific commitments or uh, holds holding me in Boston. I'm a, um, it's me, my significant other, and our two cats, so we can move anywhere. Um, so I was looking at, you know, maybe staying in Boston, maybe going to Colorado, maybe going to Washington. Um, and I think that I wasted a lot of my vacation time on interviews in places that ultimately I knew I didn't really want to go. Um, so again, the geography part. Yeah. Whoever threw out that, uh,